honestly, to tell you the truth, reading through this and taking it into the uh, the New Testament just makes me feel dumber. So the more time we spend actually putting these these psalms in their context and explaining what they mean, I think the better the program will be. You know, I think it's interesting. I think that that um, the worst thing a church could ever do would be to disciple people and actually take them through all these passages. I've never, in in the 40 years that I was in the church, never was it offered to me to do a Bible study on uh, the 300-plus prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, and I can totally understand why. Yeah, it would be, it would be pretty be, scary. It would be thoroughly, thoroughly detrimental to, the, to their faith to do this Bible study. Isn't that interesting? Because it's, it's touted, you know, almost like a, uh, it's like a throwaway line. It's, it's like a, uh, you know, it's, it's like a cliche. It's a cliche that we have all these hundreds of prophecies, which I guess at surface value sounds very uh, impressive. You know, it's, it's almost intimidating. Wow. There are so many proofs. But the irony, I guess, is that if anyone were to really sit down and try and digest this, that they would you know, run in the opposite direction. It's so fascinating. Any reasonable person you would hope would do that. And as you said last week, it's, it's clearly a bluff. And it's not, I mean, that's, that's not to insult the faith or anything like that. But it, it, it's, if anything, it's to add some theological intellect to the faith to say that it is a bluff. You, it just cannot be taken seriously. They don't yeah. expect people to study through it. Well, I think, it's, I mean, I think I've told you that when I've spoken to people, like sort of man-to-man, you know, like sort of uh, having a real conversation, I ask them honestly, you know, how many prophecies do you really think there are, you know, in the Hebrew Scriptures? And most people I've spoken to will say, you know, 10, 15, you know, like maybe 20. Yeah. Uh, they don't yeah. really... Maybe they, 20, yeah. Yeah, they, they don't really honestly think it's more than that. G'day wherever you may be around the world, and thank you for your company on truth2u.org. That's truth2letteru.org. Joining me this hour... One of the world's most foremost authorities on missionaries, cults, and the Jewish community. He is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism Canada, and the website is jewsforjudaism.ca. Jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skoback. So, it's great to be here again, Jono. It's evening here. I guess it's afternoon with you. Afternoon in, in the winter here, and it's evening in the summer there in Canada where you are. Where... Plotting through, I mean, we're making some progress, right? We're, we're, we've made a dent in it so far. Uh, investigating the supposed 365 messianic prophecies of Jesus in the Tanakh. Where are we up to? We're up to the Psalms, the book of Psalms and the number, oh, number 59. So we're, we're certainly making progress. And uh, this one kicks off in chapter two. Now, before we jump into the Psalms, my friend, let me ask you a question, if I may. In Judaism, is the book of Psalms considered a book of prophecy? Not technically. Um, you know, the, the Bible is divided into basically three sections. Um, it's even these three sections are alluded to in the, in the Christian scriptures, but there's the, what's called the Torah, the five books of Moses, mm-hmm. and then there are the books of the prophets, and then there are what was referred to as the writings. And uh, the way it's understood, at least in terms of Jewish theology, is that these are different levels of uh, divine inspiration. They speak about the the five books of Moses. The prophecy of Moses is considered to be of of a different nature than all other prophets. Moses was fully awake 
when God spoke with him, other prophets were in a dream state. They saw visions. They mm-hmm. speak about Moses receiving the uh, revelation from God, Bas Baklaria Hameira, with a clear interface. There was no static uh, when God communicated with him, and mm-hmm. uh, that's why law, our, our commandments, the way that we're supposed to live, only is found in the five books of Moses. None of the mm-hmm. other writings gave revelation in terms of law. All the other prophets were basically there to encourage us to live according to the laws revealed by Moses. So the the five books of Moses is a, is a separate unit because it's a degree of prophecy that was unlike any of the other prophets. It's the foundation of the faith, right? Very, very. I mean, the five, the five books of Moses is the foundation of the faith. Now, I'm looking at uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 44, and it says, uh, these are the words of Jesus, it says, Then he said to them, uh, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which we're, <laughs> which we're dealing with now, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So, here we are in the Psalms. Clearly, he understood the Psalms and the prophets to be two different things, and yet this list is absolutely full of uh, what Christians believe to be, or many Christians believe to be, messianic prophecies of Jesus that he fulfilled. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how the word prophecy is understood. You know, often people uh, associate the idea of prophecy with foretelling the future. And that's really the most common uh, understanding of the word prophecy, that when we hear about someone uttering prophecy, we think that they're telling us something that's going to happen in the future. That's not really accurate. Um, The second time the word prophet appears uh, in the Bible, I think it's the second time, is when God says to Moses um, that uh, Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. Moses was complaining that he really shouldn't be the person to go to speak with Pharaoh. He uh, has a speech impediment. And God says to him, look, you'll take Aaron, your brother, and he mm-hmm. will be your prophet. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean that Aaron is going to be the person to foretell the future. It means that he will be your spokesperson. Uh-huh. And the word pro- prophecy, then, really simply means that someone is speaking on behalf of God. And it wasn't always to predict the future. The reason I think that people uh, make that association is because a large part, or probably the, the, the majority of what prophets came to do was to reprove the people, to tell them that mm. they were behaving improperly, they were, they were not living up to their potential, they were violating the covenant, and there would of, often be an explicit or implicit threat. The prophet would say, and if you don't get your act together, then you're really going to get it. And so there was mm-hmm. often a prediction that accompanied uh, the the reproof, you know, the, the, the getting beaten up by the prophets. So th- there is this assumption that, you know, the prophecy was basically to predict the future. But technically speaking, and we see this in the passage you just quoted from the uh, Gospel of Luke, that these are different levels of divine revelation and that the prophets... Uh, the, the the people who were prophets, technically speaking prophets, had a degree of prophecy that was considered, that means a degree of communication and reception of communication from God that was even clearer and more direct than the, the writings. 
which would include the book of Proverbs and Psalms uh, and uh, the, the scrolls, uh, Ecclesiastes and, and uh-huh. Lamentations. And the, the rabbis say these are revealed with not so much with prophetic uh, transmission, but with what's called Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And it was considered to be a degree of revelation that was even a little bit less direct and less clear. Um, now, does it mean that these writings did not contain uh, statements about the future, if that's what we mean when we say contain prophecy? So they, they sometimes did. The Psalms did sometimes speak about the future. So if you want to use the word prophecy in the colloquial sense as implying uh, statements about what would be happening in the future, then, yeah, these books like Psalms do contain passages like that. But strictly mm-hmm. speaking, these are not books of prophecy. That's why there's a third section of the Bible. That's why we, 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 we classify them, uh, and even the, the, the Gospels classify them in a different category than the books of the prophets. Mm, fair enough. No, thank you for that explanation. And at the moment, we find ourselves... Uh, according to this list, we find ourselves in Psalm chapter 2. In fact, on the list of 365 prophecies, this is uh, number 59, 60, 61, 62, 63, all the way to 65 is derived from Psalm, pretty much works its way all the way through. It might be an idea to begin by putting Psalm chapter, t- uh, uh, chapter 2 in its context. And uh, shall I read the whole thing, or would you like to just give us an overview? Why don't you read it? We'll hear some scripture on your show. <laughs> Let's do that. I'd like to do that. It goes like this. Now, I'm going to read, I'm going to read uh, purposefully, of course, from the, uh, the New King James, the Christian translation. Feel free to uh, interject. It says, Why do the nations rage, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying... Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask me and I will give you the nation's for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with an, a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are, the, are all those who put their trust in him. There it is, Psalm chapter 2. Just as David wrote it. <laughs> Just as David wrote it in, in King James English, there it is. <laughs> New, King, New King James English. That's right. Um, you know, the truth is that it's not a terrible translation. We'll see there's one, you know, real uh, mm-hmm. sort of uh, problem with the translation. Even there, it's not worth going to war over. But, mm-hmm. you know, the context here is fairly straightforward. It's speaking about, um, you know, this... Uh, coming together of nations uh, and kings conspiring against and uh, really opposing God and God's uh, anointed one. And Mm -hmm. uh, the psalm basically speaks about how their uh, plans and their plotting will just really come to nothing and that God will ultimately, uh, you know, vanquish them and, and, uh, you know, they're not going to succeed in whatever they're trying to do. 
and uh, really it's a, a statement of you know who really runs the world and all the plotting of these human leaders will come to naught to nothing and uh, the, the psalm really ends as many psalms do with uh, you know uh, encouragement to really live properly to follow God and to follow God properly and that's really what's going on here and obviously th- this list of prophecies we're going through sees in this uh, you know one psalm uh, incredibly, uh, half a dozen prophecies that they claim prove that Jesus was the Messiah. So, so those uh, those particular prophecies that includes things like uh, in this particular list, it says uh, the enmity uh, enmity of kings foreordained uh, that that he would own the title anointed, uh, his character would be holiness. He would own the title king. He would declare to be the beloved son. Uh, in there also, apparently, is the crucifixion and the resurrection intimated. Uh, life comes through faith in Jesus. So this, these, these are uh, what's, what's on the list, and they've given some references in the New Testament to support that. Yeah, I might mention, actually, one or two of them, because actually they, they become interesting in some of the cases. Okay, well, we, we can do that. Let, let me, uh, just in the beginning of uh, Psalm chapter 2. Let me clarify some things, if I may. Uh, It says, And rulers shall take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, I've got, of course, in the the new King James uh, version, it's a a very Christological uh, slanted uh, translation. And and one of the ways that it enforces that is, of course, putting, uh, is capitalizing certain words. And in this case, anointed is capitalized and, and and what they mean to say in just that one capital a is that this is in reference to jesus now uh in actual fact this is in reference to the king of israel and we're talking about are we talking about because it goes on to say um in verse six yet yet i have set my king on my holy hill of zion it then goes on to say uh the lord has said to me you are my son today i have begotten you. Of course, that takes us back to what we were talking about last week in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. Which king are we talking about? We're talking about a king. Are we talking about David or Solomon? Well, that's a great question. Uh, Jewish commentaries uh, have a great time trying to figure out who this is talking about. And there are basically two or three candidates that really come to the fore. Um, the truth is some of the commentaries say that this might be a reference to the ultimate king, which is the Messiah, that final great king. And so really, in the list of 59 that we've done so far, this might actually be the fourth actual passage that really does speak about the future Messiah. It's not clear, though. And some commentaries say that it's speaking, though, about David or even about his son Solomon. So usually those are the three uh, candidates that are that come up here, and uh, you know they all make a lot of sense. You know that these are all kings. Uh, the Messiah will be a king. David and Solomon were kings. David and Solomon were both referred to as God's son, basically being referred to as God's son uh, in the same way in Exodus four twenty two. The Jewish people in general are referred to as God's son. Is simply mm-hmm. a way that the Bible speaks about some closeness close relationship with God. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not really clear exactly which anointed one this is referring to. I'm surprised that the King James and other Christian translations don't just simply say, uh, you know, call this person God, the Messiah, meaning why why mince words? 
um, because anointed one is sort of vague. There are so many anointed ones in the Bible. This is this is this is true. And and, and you know what, Jason and I, uh, Jason from SpiritualBabies.net, we we did a program on this, and uh, I think it was called Messiah in the Tanakh, and we uh, we went through all the all the, the the places where where Mashiach is mentioned. Uh, and the word anointed as well. And here you have a capital A anointed. The, in fact, you have capital A anointed all through the New King James. The only place where it is translated as Messiah Daniel. is, of course, Daniel chapter 9. And yeah. as I pointed out on the program, isn't that an opportunity missed? Because this is the, the, the word that they could have uh, enforced even more so by putting the word Messiah there. Why, yeah. why do you think they didn't? I have no idea. I mean, I, I think that uh, would have been uh, from a Christian to write the word Messiah would have been legitimate. It's certainly what the word says in Hebrew. Um, I think that what we should point out, though, and I think this is significant here in this psalm, is that it's very clear that the text here differentiates between God and the Messiah. It doesn't say that these kings will come up against God the Messiah. It's mm-hmm. against God and God's Messiah. So it's very mm-hmm. clear that the Messiah here is not God. Um, if we want to go with that approach that sees this anointed one as the future Messiah. Um, again, it could easily be referring to a, a, another king, another anointed one like David or Solomon. But if we go with the interpretation that sees this psalm as really speaking about the future, uh, the ultimate future king, the Messiah himself, mm-hmm. it's just important to point out, like we see in the book of Hosea as well, chapter 3, that God is distinguished from the Davidic Messiah. It's not the same being. God is God and the Davidic Messiah is another entity and they are distinguished in the passage itself. Um, Also, what's very interesting in this chapter is that it describes this king very clearly as one that will rule over Zion with a rod of iron and Mm. that he will crush his enemies. So, whoever it's speaking about, whether it's, you know, these 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 descriptions did, uh, you know, certainly apply to David and Solomon. They ruled with a real rulership, and they did crush their enemies, and it will certainly be true of the future Messiah. The, the Bible is full of passages which speak about the ultimate vanquishing of the enemies of Israel by the Messiah um, in the Messianic age, but clearly Jesus did not do any of this. And so, you know, one person who it's clear this is not speaking about is Jesus. Um, And as I mentioned last week, I think that this is, again, one of those messianic prophecies that that Christians will be forced to say, well, he will do this when he returns at the second coming. And that's really what we will see every time there is a passage in the scriptures that really could apply to the Messiah, a, a true messianic prophecy, Christians will be forced to relegate it to the second coming because clearly, mm. you know, when Jesus was living, he certainly did not crush his enemies. They crushed him. And he did not rule over Zion. He wasn't a king. He was never uh, a king. He never ruled. So, th- they're forced to say, well, he will rule. He will vanquish his enemies when he returns, which is fine. I mean, if people want to believe that, um, that's fine. But you can't point to this psalm and say it was something that Jesus fulfilled already, and that therefore it proves, mm. it proves he's the Messiah. just wanted to point out that, because uh, I looked at these references in the Christian scriptures, Acts chapter 4 here um, speaks about the opponents of Jesus being Herod and Pilate. 
Uh, now, now before before you get there, an interesting, just a little thing. The, the, they've they've referenced Acts chapter four verses twenty five to twenty eight. Uh, and the interesting thing about this is that verse twenty five attributes this psalm to David, but in actual fact, the psalm isn't owned by anyone. Is that correct? Uh, it, well, it's interesting. Many of the psalms begin with a with a introduction saying that it's a mm. psalm of David. Um, here, there isn't. Um, here, it just begins going into the uh, content without an introduction, saying it's by David. But there's a sort of a default uh, understanding that, by and large, the Psalms are written by David. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, the, the text doesn't... So, it's a fair assumption. It's a fair assumption. It was probably uh, traditionally understood as such in the first century, and and, uh, and it is too today in, in I, uh, Orthodox Judaism? I would imagine that that would be the, the sort of normative guess. Sure. Yeah. It's okay. not really... It's true that we don't really have, you know, each one of the 150 psalms at the end of each one signed, Love, David. No, no. <laughs> so, some of them do make it more explicit and some of them... Sure, uh, and yeah. some of them don't. And, and it goes on to say in 25 and 26, it quotes from Psalm uh, uh, chapter 2. And in, chap- in, in verse 27 of Acts chapter 4, you were saying... So, what the interesting thing is that, you know, the, the psalm actually describes... Um, you know the kings of the earth conspiring against you know this this uh, anointed one of God. Mm. Now he he mentions the two kings that are mentioned in Acts are Herod and Pilate. Now what I found interesting was that you know the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew describes this story where Herod supposedly is uh, terrified about the birth of Jesus and he sends a small delegation to kill him. You know, he wanted, mm. he wanted to nip this potential uh, competitor, you know, nip it in the bud and kill this child mm. before he grows up to become, uh, you know, a competitor uh, that yep. would challenge his kingdom. But, you know, the entire story of, of Herod sending the, this little army to kill all the babies in Bethlehem and the surrounding cities, you know, it's mentioned in Matthew, but it's not mentioned anywhere else in the Christian Bible, and there's no historical sources that corroborated it would be the kind of story that if it happened if there was such a massacre well it's front page news it's absolutely front page it, news. it would have been expected yeah it would have been a big story it would have been a mm. serious story but you know no other gospel mentions it it's not in the talmud it's not in josephus it's not in philo it's not in tacitus no one on the planet mentions it but in matthew and it's the kind of story where we would assume that people would know about it it would have been uh, an incredible tragedy to have every mm. baby that was under the age of two, boy baby, uh, not just in Bethlehem, but in all the surrounding cities, we're told, killed in this brutal massacre. So, you know, it's not really clear that Jesus was really opposed by Herod. And then Pilate, I wouldn't name him as an incredible persecutor of Jesus because. You know, the the Christian scriptures go out of their way to say that Pilate really didn't see a problem with Jesus, and he uh, didn't really seem to have it in Jesus. He seems to it, really... It paints him in a light that is not, uh, that, that doesn't seem to um, concur with uh, other historical accounts of, of Pilate. He... He was rather a bloodthirsty man and, and, and wouldn't hesitate to, uh, um, to slice open a Jew. Yeah, and, but the, 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 the Gospels portray him as very, very conciliatory and uh, almost you know, disregarding Jesus as a problem, meaning that he doesn't seem to be 
taking Jesus as a serious threat that he needs to squash. Uh, Indeed, wanting to wanting to spare his life, look, just take him and flog him a bit, and hopefully that'll placate the people and we'll let him go. Yeah, it seems that he's only you know caving into the you know tr- these brutal Jewish crowds that are intimidating him. Now, now that mm. we know is absurd because Pilate was not intimidated by the Jews; he actually was a, a brutal, horribly brutal uh, yeah. procurator. But the point is that you know Psalms is describing you know this opposition and this this plotting against God's anointed one by the kings and the two kings that are mentioned in the book of Acts don't really seem to be good candidates for the description in Psalms 2. I found that odd. While we're in Acts, uh, the next one that they reference is Acts chapter 2 verse 36. Uh, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Yeah, this is number 60, right? That, that uh, yeah. It's saying that this one I found to be very, very uh, strange because, um, you know, they say here on this list that this is a prophecy that the Messiah will have the title of Christ, um, which is so strange because Christ means Messiah. It's almost a tautology. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost saying what the, this compiler of the list is saying is that there's this amazing thing we learn from the book of Psalms, and what is that? The amazing thing is that the Messiah will be called the Messiah. <laughs> <laughs> that can only happen, you know, when we see what really uh, is common in the Christian world. I can't tell you how many Christians have asked me, in all seriousness, why don't the Jews believe that Christ was the Messiah? And I tell right. them that, well, Christ means Messiah, it doesn't make much sense to say, why don't you believe the Messiah is the Messiah? It's, Christ really became almost like a, a last name for Jesus, like mm. Jesus Christ, Jesus Goldberg, Jesus Schwartz, Jesus Feldman. Mm. Uh, and there's very little understanding that you know, Messiah is not really someone's last name. It's simply a description of the person as having been anointed to serve in some capacity either as a king or a high priest or something like that. And, so, and, and, as, and as you just said, either as a king. So, uh, at number 62, of course, uh, says that he will own the title king. But, of course, all kings were messiahs, were anointed, were Christ's. They're, they're all uh, messiahs. That applies there as well. Yeah. It, 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 I, I'm, it's, just a, it, it's almost flabbergasting to see this list put together um, really with a very little... Uh, it's relying on the ignorance of the reader. Well, and, and the compiler. I think the compiler, in all innocence, just sort of, you know, is taken by the fact that in Psalm 2, uh, you know, they speak about God's anointed one. And, uh, again, it's, it's important to remember that uh, all that's taking place in Psalm 2 is that it speaks about God's anointed, whether it's speaking about a particular king, historical king like David or Solomon, or it's even referring to the future Messiah himself, the anointed Messiah. Um, but let's go with the interpretation, I'm willing to do that, that this psalm is referring to the future Messiah. Um, mm-hmm. So that's wonderful. It's talking about the fact that God is going to have uh, opposition in the world, and so will God's anointed one. But there's nothing in this psalm that tells us that it's referring to Jesus, meaning it's, 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 again, based upon circular reasoning. It's based upon the assumption of the compiler here 
that they begin with the premise that Jesus was the Messiah. So if Jesus was the Messiah, then any passage in the Bible that mentions the Messiah must then therefore be speaking about Jesus. But mm-hmm. the, the entire thing only works in sort of uh, backwards. Um, and, uh, you know, as has often been the case as we work through this list. Yeah. Okay, number 61, Psalm 2, verse 6, his character, holiness, and that apparently is reflected in John chapter 8, verse 46, and Revelations 3, 7. What that says in, in John, of course, is, uh, uh, which of you convicts me of sin, and if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? In, in Revelation 3, 7, it says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy, there we go, he's holy, uh, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. So, I was also uh, really interested in this uh, passage because um, it's clear that when you read Psalm 2 here, um, it's speaking about God. Um, and we know throughout the entire Bible that God, we can speak about God's character as uh, being holy, it says in Leviticus mm. 18, we're told to be like God. God says, Kadoshim uh, Tihu, you shall be holy, Ki Kadosh Ani, as I, God, am holy. Um, but what's interesting is that this psalm doesn't really speak about God's holiness. The psalm uh, speaks about the Temple Mount as a holy place. It doesn't speak anything about the character of God here that's as being very holy. true it's not not even about uh, not even about the uh, Mashiach not about God it says I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion yeah there's something in, the, in this chapter about God being holy although that's true about God so uh, how hmm. they got this in terms of this psalm is strange and you know what I would say is that um, you know Jesus may have been a good person but I don't see much uh, evidence to compel us to think that he was what we call in Hebrew a kadosh. That's actually a very, very high level to reach. And what I found interesting is that uh, the two proofs here that that the character of Jesus was holy was in John 8.46, where he basically, he's chiding people who don't simply accept him for who he claimed to be um, and, you know, doesn't seem to have any doesn't seem well this one here john eight forty six is saying uh is is asserting that jesus is sinless but holiness doesn't necessarily mean sinless i mean if we're talking uh without sin w- without blame we're talking about someone who is righteous but holiness means to be set apart right yeah i mean it, it, you could make the you could equate the two you could say that generally speaking someone that's sinless would be a holy person if you want to use this you know, term holiness uh, in that way. Um, but, I mean, there are different words, and it's just that I, I found these two references in the Christian scriptures sort of strange because they don't really prove that Jesus was sinless or holy. It's just that the fact that um, he's asserting, you know, that he's holy or he's asserting that he's, um, you know, I think in in uh, Revelation he, he refers to himself as holy, but in John, he's basically only saying that he's someone who speaks the truth. Mm. Um, there's, not even, there's not even a reference there that he's holy. So it's yeah. just, uh, you know, again, I, I don't want to demean the character of Jesus. I, I actually, you know, could very well see him as being uh, a person who strove for holiness. I just don't see any mm. 
reason to assume just uh, you know without some kind of clear indication that he was indeed uh, this kind of special person in Hebrew. Again, when we call someone a kadosh, a holy person, it's not the kind of character uh, description that we would use for anyone, even. Uh, good people. Um, it, it's really a special class all by itself. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, unless we just simply um, work with the Christian scriptures as accepting what's being declared without questioning it, um, I would just, as a person trying to be objective, just wonder what what is there to lead us to assume that he was indeed a holy person. Um, all we get here really are his claims. And one thing we know from Jewish literature in general is that when someone goes around claiming to be holy, that's not usually the first candidate we'd see for uh, a holy person. You know, the one, that, for example, that, that is saying how uh, I'm such a humble person, a humble person doesn't walk around saying they're humble. You know, uh, it's almost the opposite to the top. Rabbis say that, you know, if you chase after honor, it runs away from you. And so mm. to just assert these things about yourself. It doesn't really come off, to me at least, as strong evidence. <laughs> that reminds me of Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> oh, I love that movie. And it's I, now, what's her name? I forget the second daughter's name when she, uh, and she said to Perchik, the, the, the rabbi who praises himself has a congregation of one. <laughs> so, the, uh, to, to own the title king, now we talked about that, of course, all kings, um, all Mashiachs were either a king or a high priest, in some cases even a prophet, but that's no surprise. Well, what's important, again, this is a, this is a very serious point, though, is that um, the, the passage in Psalms here speaks about this person as a king specifically again not every anointed one was a king some of the times they were priests but here it specifically tells us that this anointed one will be anointed as a king and it's important just to again be clear that jesus was never anointed um as a king no, uh, usually right. the anointing by the way was you know it wasn't done in some barber shop it, you were no, no. you were anointed by a prophet of god and so there's no sure. record that Jesus was anointed um, by a prophet of God. And it's also important that he never ruled as a Jewish king, meaning that mm. unless you just take the word king and you, uh, you know, it becomes meaningless. Uh, mm. You know, the king was a specific office that had to rule as a, in a political way. I mean, we know that what a king was, a, a, you know, we know, for example, when we say president of the United States, uh, you know, prime minister of a country, we understand exactly what that means. And, uh, you know, for someone, I think there's a passage where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So to, to, to basically redefine kingship in some spiritual way where it can't really be seen, um, it's not really a king in the sense that the Bible, uh, especially here, uses the word king. Here it's really speaking about a, a political king that has rulership and that exercises rulership um, as you know, we said before, he, this is a king that's going to smash his enemies with mm. uh, you the know, a rod of iron. He's going to. Mm. I mean, it's speaking about someone who really functions in a very physical and uh, political way as a king, as a ruler. And again, this simply does not um, apply to Jesus. Also, by the way, um, I don't remember. I might be wrong here. I don't remember any of Jesus' disciples referring to him as a king, speaking about him as a king. And 
the only person I think that really does refer to Jesus as a king is Pilate, who... Uh, Are you the king of the Jews? Yeah, and then he sort of sarcastically writes on the crucifixion stake, you know, that's, mm. here's the king of the Jews, almost saying mockingly, you know, mm. what kind of a king is this? Um, but I don't think that, that his disciples ever really speak about him or refer to him as a king or as their king. I may be That's wrong there. There's, may be there's wrong some there. homework. There's some homework for the listeners. If <laughs> if uh, if you know of a verse, please put it in the comments section. We would love to hear from you. Declared the beloved son. Now this is of course uh, Psalm chapter two verse seven. Uh, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, and that's why I said to you: Is this in reference to David, or is it in Solomon? Is is it in reference to Solomon? And as you said, of course, both of those were referred to as God's son. And I think Solomon, the only person by name in the whole of the Tanakh to be referred to, the only individual by name to be referred to as God's son, and yet. As you also point out, it may well be uh, a messianic psalm, and it may be referring to the, the coming Messiah. But, of course, that coming Messiah, as we established last week, must be a descendant of David and Solomon, the, the, uh, the line through David and Solomon. Um, the verse here is Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, uh, and it says, And then suddenly a voice came out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, last time a voice came out of heaven, uh, I don't know how often that happens, but that reminds me of the Sinai event where everybody uh, almost passed out with fear and said, please, can you stop God from talking to us? Moses, we'll hear you. Let him talk to you because if he keeps talking, we're going to die. We're so frightened. Well, I guess this is a case that uh, God was maybe speaking into his hands and quietly. Uh, (laughs) But... You know, again, what we're being asked here to to do is we're being asked here to consider um, this passage in Psalms as, again, predictive and proving that Jesus was the Messiah. And the most we could extract from this psalm, the most we could extract is that the Messiah will be uh, declared um, to be God's son and to, to have that closeness to God. But again, all it's really saying is that that would be true of the Messiah. There's nothing in this psalm itself that points to Jesus specifically, meaning that um, the only way this would work and connect to Jesus is if we accept the uh, the New Testament's claims about Jesus mm-hmm. um, and then work backwards to psalms. But it's impossible to go from psalms to Jesus. Doesn't There's no connection. Um, there's nothing that you know we see in this psalm that would identify Jesus as this uh, you know as this Messiah. Now it's also yeah it's also in Acts chapter thirteen verses twenty nine to thirty three which ends with um, that he, he was well, it says he was crucified he they took him down from the tree they put him in the tomb God raised him from the dead lots of people saw it and uh, God has fulfilled this for his uh, for for us their children in that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, my son today I have begotten you. That's the, the writer of Acts puts that in there. This is, this is a serious clunker here because in number 64, we're being told that these verses in psalm intimate the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, I looked pretty hard at this psalm and there's nothing at all about a crucifixion or resurrection in this psalm, not even intimated. Um, so it's hard for me to wrap my head around this, where uh, the compiler of this list sees in Psalm 2 uh, any 
indication that the Messiah one day would be crucified and resurrected. Um, you know, typically what Christians say is that Jews fail to see Jesus as the Messiah because we're spiritually blind. Um, you know, maybe that's why I can't see it in the psalm. Um, but, it's, but it's specific. As, as I began with uh, Luke chapter 24, at the beginning of this program, uh, verse 46 says, Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. Now, they're very specific things that the Messiah, the Mashiach, must suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Very, very specific things that he claims in the, in the previous verses are in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, it, it, it shouldn't be so hard. <laughs> I, it shouldn't be that difficult to go through uh, the five books of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms and find such a specific thing that, that the, the Messiah must, must uh, suffer and, and die be, and rise on the third day. And I, I, I have to admit, I haven't been able to find it. Whenever I've uh, taken that up with Christians, they've never been able to give me uh, even one verse that would suggest such. Uh, the only thing that I always get, and maybe you experience this as well, is uh, hints and shadows, which yep. says to me, that uh, Jesus has not opened their eyes to the scriptures, as it says in those verses in the end of Luke. But there's no, not even a hint or a shadow in the five books of Moses uh, no. towards this idea. I mean, we didn't see anything, even in That's this right. list. And this is specifically what he said, that the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, all three categories apparently contain that information. Well, here's the, the um, intimation in the psalm, which is what this list says here, 64, uh, the crucifixion and resurrection intimated. Um, but I, again, I, I just simply don't see any intimation or certainly nothing clear um, in this psalm about crucifixion or resurrection. Mm. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, there's an old saying that when you point your finger at people, you get three pointing back three at pointing yourself. Three pointing back. Um, so I, 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 I've been called blind so many times. I wish I had a dollar for every time uh, I, was told, <laughs> I was told that I'm spiritually blind. Um, so if anybody knows of those those particular verses, um, if if you are a, a believer of the New Testament, uh, please, I'm begging you, we would love to see that in the comments section. Not hints, not shadows, not suggestions, but but those specific things identified in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms, that would be grand. Number 65 is Psalm chapter 2, verse 12, uh, and this, this uh, list, uh, 365 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, uh, suggests that life comes through faith in him, and citing John chapter 20, verse 31, which says, uh, but these things are written, uh, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and uh, that believing you may have life in his name. I always uh, got a kick out of that verse in John because it's sort of, uh, you know, it, it's an admission really that, you know, these gospel stories were not written by journalists or historians. Um, you know, they're, we're being told these are written specifically to promote faith in Jesus, that, that, uh, that that's why these stories are written. That they had an agenda to get people to believe in Jesus. Now, these things are written to talk you around. Well, I mean, it doesn't that wouldn't in and of itself prove that the stories are not accurate, but it, it's a bit of a tip-off, meaning that we're, the, the writer here is telling us that you know, there was a motivation for writing these stories. And again, they, he could be writing stories that are true, but we know that psychologically 
if your goal is to convince people uh, to believe in something, um, would you ever exaggerate stories or make up stories in order to get them uh, to believe what you want them to believe? Mm. Um, and you know, I, I've done a lot of research into because um, one of the main themes of, of the gospel stories are the incredible miracles that Jesus allegedly performed. And uh, I'm 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 not around back then. I'm not. I wasn't around two thousand years ago. But we're living today, where this formula is very, very commonly found. Uh, you know, among Christian evangelists, that um, you know they point to all the miracles that take place today in the church and in the lives of Christians, and that becomes uh, you know very important in terms of marketing Christianity. Uh, that you know, people's lives are changed, and there are miracles that take place. And uh, you know, I-, I wonder to myself. Well, you know, the gospel writers are claiming that miracles took place two thousand years ago, and today's evangelists claim that miracles are taking place today. And I, I wonder, are all the stories that we're hearing today true? And if the people that are telling stories today might be fabricating stories, so then certainly it would be possible that uh, a writer 2,000 years ago, in order to convince people to believe in Jesus, would also fabricate or exaggerate stories. And what I found mm. interesting is that uh, a lot of my work, uh, time was saved because Christians themselves have investigated many of these uh, you know, claims to healings and to miracles. Mm. Um, you don't need to have a, a skeptic like myself or someone that's not Christian doing this investigation. And in many of the investigations done by Christians themselves into these uh, claims of healings and miracles, uh, they, they themselves found you know tremendous degree of fabrication and exaggeration. Um, so I think that when John says here that he's writing you know these stories in order to convince people to believe in Jesus, I think we should take him at his word and uh, understand that this is the agenda that he's telling us that he has. And again, it wouldn't, it wouldn't in and of itself impeach the credibility of the stories, but it would certainly give a person reason to be suspicious and to wonder. That's, that's, very, that's very fair. Moving on from uh, Psalm chapter 2, we now find ourselves number 66 I have, of the I list. Have, I have to roll you back there, John. <laughs> oh, 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 we've gone too far. Come on. Well, but, Where are we? Well, this uh, 65 uh, you know, claims that what this psalm is teaching us is that we are able to have life through faith in the Messiah. And mm-hmm. this is not, the way that the that the list compiler has this. It's not speaking about faith in, well, to him, obviously, uh, him is both God and Jesus. They assume that they're one. But for the purposes of this compiler, he's saying that this is a list of prophecies about Jesus. And therefore, the claim is that this passage in Psalms teaches us that we can have life, I assume that means eternal life, through faith in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And this is based upon a very, very controversial translation. Um, you know, the way most Christian Bibles, I think all Christian Bibles, translate Psalm 2, verse 12, is that we have to kiss the sun. And, I can't uh, believe that I almost went past that. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am going, I'm looking at John, I'm looking at John, and I'm going, yeah, so John says, and okay, uh, let's move on, you know. But of course, you're absolutely right. 
So what I have, and I love the way that it appears here in uh, my New King James Study Bible, it says, uh, kiss the son, lest he be angry. And it's got capitals all over the place, but it also has a couple, a couple of little uh, asterisks, two in one line, <laughs> indeed. And usually in my, uh, the, the reason why I like to use the New King James Study Bible is for the most part, when they're really kind of stretching the truth or, or being tricky with the text, they, they tell you, you know, if they're, if they're lying to you, they, they kind of tell you with a little asterisk. And you have to go down, you know, somewhere else on the page to find the smallest writing, the smallest font that you can find on the page. And that's where they tell you in a little bit more detail what it actually means. And what I'm reading here is uh, phrases like embrace discipline or receive instruction. And what I have, in fact, from my, uh, my new uh, JPS in this verse, it says uh, something entirely different. It says pay homage in good faith lest he be uh, angered. And your way be doomed in the mere flash of his anger. Wow. So the one Why thing, is it so different? Yeah, it, well, you know, it's interesting because the Hebrew here is um, both easy and hard. The Hebrew says nashku var. And the nashku part is easy. It literally means to kiss. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, that's, not, that's not controversial. And the problem is the second word, bar. Does it, what does it mean? Normally in the Hebrew scriptures, it refers to grain most often. But there are, I think, seven or eight times when it speaks about purity and cleanliness. So mm-hmm. it, it would be difficult to think about kissing grain unless you're some kind of a carb, <laughs> a carb freak. Well, now, hang on. I've got to pull the brakes on because we have in Judaism, of course, uh, the age of 13 or whatever it may be, we have bar mitzvahs, right? <laughs> what is this? It's, what is it? it's, the, it's a mitzvah for, for the grain? What are you talking about? Well, so that's, that's where this gets interesting because bar ah. mitzvah is not a Hebrew expression. Bar mitzvah is Aramaic. Ah. Uh, and, and so what happens here is that the, the Hebrew, um, you, you would not translate this, this as kissing the grain. So the, the proper translation would be to, to kiss, literally kiss cleanliness or purity. And that's why the, the word kiss then is understood, um, you know, not literally, but as a way of saying when you kiss something, you're really showing closeness to it and embracing it or homage to it. So the way it's normally understood is to to embrace or to pay homage to to really to be close with purity and cleanliness. It's a it's mm-hmm. a really it's a it's a instruction for us to to follow cleanliness and purity. Mm. Um, the Christian translation that takes the word as son, you know, it, it really is implying that the word here is not Hebrew but Aramaic. As you said, the bar mitzvah, you know. It, well, no. Now I have to. No, I've got to stop you again. Then, 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 then what we uh, it should say what you're what you're suggesting is um, Christians interpret this as kiss the bar, as in kiss the son, lest he be angry at you, using the Aramaic bar, uh, in the same way that in verse seven, you are my bar. Uh, today I have begotten you. Is that right? No, because in verse seven it uses the Hebrew ben. What do you mean? Oi. That's crazy. <laughs> That makes no sense at all. So what now? It, it, what you're saying is that earlier on in this chapter we have the the, the Hebrew Ben for son in verse seven, but all of a sudden down in verse twelve we borrow from the Aramaic. Yeah. So you're you're asking a good question. Like why would uh, the psalmist here write the word son in Hebrew, which is the normal word Ben, and then all of a sudden switch to the Aramaic term in verse twelve? 
it's even a bigger problem than that because if if this was an Aramaic word, you'd have to ask the question: Why would uh, this word appear here in Psalm two, verse twelve in Aramaic? There's no other time in the entire book of Psalms. It's a pretty big book. It's 150 chapters. <laughs> Actually, it would be the longest book, I guess, in terms of chapters in the Bible. And the word, the word son appears many, many, many times. Tell me there's one other place where, where bar is used in reference to son. I mean, no, surely, come on. Not, what? Well, not, not in uh, the book of Psalms. and it, There's no other Aramaic in the book of Psalms. So it would be very, very strange. Hang on, let me get this right. Wait, 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 wait. Let's just get this right. So what we have is the use of the word son in, chapter, in, in verse 7 of chapter 2, and it is the Hebrew ben, and that's, right. that makes perfect sense. When we get to verse 12... It is the Aramaic bar, or at least that's what the Christian would say. Uh, this also means son. We're just borrowing from the Aramaic in order to make that work. But what you're saying is, uh, I don't know how many times the word uh, son is used in the Psalms, but it's a lot. And nowhere else is the Aramaic uh, bar used in reference to son anywhere. In fact, what you're saying is Aramaic is not used. Never. Now, we know that, that never in the Psalms. Now, now Aramaic is splashed through uh, a little bit in Dan. There's a bit, well, quite a bit quite in Daniel. Bit There's Daniel. some in Jeremiah. There's is a little teeny bit in Proverbs, I think, if I remember correctly. Okay. You have just once in a blue moon, but in Psalms, it, it never comes up. So that would be a, a, a problem with verse 12. Another problem well. is that even if it was Aramaic, it wouldn't be the correct Aramaic word for the son. Meaning that the, the form of Aramaic to say the son would be vra. And bar really has the implication of just a son, uh, not the son. So it, it really doesn't work smoothly, even in Aramaic. So uh, even, let me ask just one more question. If if we, <laughs> I mean, it, I think we've blown it away that it, obviously it doesn't mean son, but, uh, you know, I can, I can see why uh, the Christian translations would want to do that. But if we go to, to verse 7, uh, you know, it says, uh, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. We find passage like, passages like that in regards to David. We find it certainly in regards to Solomon. Is there a commandment somewhere where, where Solomon or David said, you must kiss me, otherwise I'm going to be angry? No. I mean, I think that what, and it's, I think that's what it means here as well, by the way. I think that um, if we do accept this translation, I mean, I, again, I could live with it. Um, all it would be saying is, you know, not kissing literally the, the Messiah, but, uh, you know, submitting to the rule of the Messiah, uh-huh. Um, there's, there's nothing. See again, the, the that's the, a good thing, right? That's a good thing. Well, we're required. We're required to listen to a king and to obey a king. Um, and you know what the psalm clearly is not saying is that uh, it implies that we're to worship this uh, anointed one as God and worship him mm-hmm. as God. You see, when it says in in this list here, life comes through faith in him. The the writer here is saying really uh, believing in the Messiah, ultimately worshiping this anointed one. And, you know, all, all it would mean if we accepted this, um, I think, a mistranslation, if it was to really be saying something about kissing the son, would be that we have, we have to have obedience and submit ourselves to the rule of this Messiah. Simply that. Nothing about believing in him, worshiping him as God. 
um, that much you would not be able to extract from the text. No, uh, so this is a, a translational uh, in, invention. Uh, to, to, to even strengthen that, is there anywhere in the New Testament, because you would think that uh, a New Testament writer would pick up on this, is there anywhere in the New Testament that quotes uh, this in the Greek as saying, kiss the sun? I don't remember that. Um, I don't think there is. I'd like to hear from the listeners on that, if they can find that in the, in the New Testament uh, quoting it that way, and as it appears in the Greek, that'd be interesting to find out. I don't think it's there. By the way, Shall just, we move? By the way, yeah. just for you know, uh, I mean, it's interesting that this word in verse twelve appears, uh, you know, many times um, in Christian translations of the Bible, and uh, it's always translated elsewhere as purity, um, mm-hmm. and. You know, it's not as if it's always translated in Christian translations as son. Uh, this would be the only place that even Christians somehow come up with this, uh, you know, sort of out there translation. It's not consistent because every single other place in a Christian Bible, this Hebrew word appears, it's always translated correctly. Um, so that would be a question that is worth thinking about also. Um, I think the earliest Christian translations didn't render it as son. I think the earliest that I, I know about is the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. didn't, that was more in line with the traditional Jewish translations of embracing that's right. instruction. Embrace discipline. Embrace discipline. That's right. So uh, the only place in the New Testament, Luke 22, verse 48, Jesus said to him, Judas, you are betraying the Son of Man with a kiss. Um, that doesn't really apply. All well, right, that's, so that's we're moving. the exact opposite. That's the exact opposite. That's that's not kiss the sun lest he be angry. It's like, dude, you, can you not? Anyway, um, moving on before we get nailed down there. Oh, that's a terrible expression to use. Okay, moving on. Psalm eight, verse two. We're we're in Psalm chapter eight. We made the it mouth- out of chapter two. We made it out of chapter two. We're in eight. There's a couple of references in eight. It, it uh, references uh, verse two to verse six as uh, being significant. And I might just read that. How about I read this one? Psalm chapter eight. It says, I'm going to start from the beginning. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth uh, who have set your glory above the heavens. Uh, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger when i consider your heavens the work of your fingers the moon the stars which you have ordained what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor Uh, you, you have made him uh to have dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet it's a very beautiful psalm isn't it? Isn't it very what? beautiful? Yeah. Um, you know, if we start off with number sixty-six here, um, the mouths of babes perfect his praise. Now, uh, if I can just uh, translate that, I think that what he's saying is that there'll be babies. Um, I suppose praising the Messiah. That's, I guess, what he's saying. That that Psalms eight tells us that the Messiah will be praised by babies. Uh, Matthew 21, uh, I guess, has a story where um, the children in the temple are calling out Hosanna, I think. They're, they're calling out in praise of, of uh, the Messiah. 
um, the, the but strength. This is, this is clearly not the Messiah. I mean, if, if you start from verse 1, I mean, I know the list doesn't start from verse 1. There's, the list starts with verse 2. But, the, but uh, verse 1 of, of Psalms 8, we have the Tetragrammaton identifying specifically who we're talking about. Uh, it, and it says, uh, our Lord, how, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. How do we jump from that verse into the second verse uh, referencing the Messiah? Well, that's the problem here, that the, the, the Christian compiler here, you know, sort of makes the jump and equates Jesus with God. You know, we have here a, a, a verse in Psalm 8-2 which speaks about praising God, and this entire psalm is about praising God who created the universe, created the stars and the moon, etc., um, so it's clearly a psalm speaking about God, and I think any hmm. reader would have difficulty understanding that, that it's speaking about the Creator. Now, hmm. how you get from that to making the to assertion Messiah. that it's speaking, you have to basically begin with the assumption that the Messiah is God himself. Um, but but again, it, it's, it's something which doesn't really come out of the text here in Psalms. I also thought it was interesting, by the way, that... The, the Hebrew seems to imply that it's speaking about infants and nursing babies. Um, mm-hmm. That's the sense of the Hebrew. And the, the passage in Matthew 21 is pretty much not speaking about infants and nursing babies. It's speaking about you know, children who are in the temple and actually speaking already. They're able to speak uh, words. And so uh, it wouldn't really line up the story in Matthew with, mm. with the passage in Psalms because... You know, Matthew is clearly not speaking about nursing babies. Um, uh, no, because Jesus here is saying, "Do you hear what these are saying?" This is, uh, and he said to them, "Yes. Have you have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise?" Right, but the the narrative in Matthew, I believe, wh- where you see him being praised by children, uh, are, are really older children. They're children mm. who are probably, you know. I imagine four or five, six years, the, the youngest, who were able to actually speak and, and praise. But Psalms 8 is really speaking about uh, infants and nursing babies who mm, mm. would not be the kind of children that you see in Matthew 21. Um, so uh, Psalms 8 2, which is number 66 on our list, uh, leaves me a little bit dry in terms of uh, putting my faith in Jesus. That one doesn't do it for you. So doesn't following on, <laughs> the next one is uh, still in Psalms 8, we are in Psalm 8, and it's referencing, uh, this is number 67, verse 5 and verse 6, his humiliation and exaltation. And it's referencing uh, a passage from Luke and 1 Corinthians. Uh, what, what I find really interesting, uh, by the way, is that it doesn't, uh, this list doesn't reference, uh, I think it is Hebrews chapter, oh boy, I think it, it yeah, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, quotes specifically, from uh, Psalm chapter 8, and it doesn't appear here in the list. I don't know why. I think, again, as you and I mentioned earlier, we could probably make a better list, I think. But in this case, uh, we have Luke 24, the ascension and uh, of Jesus. And then in uh, Corinthians 15, uh, it says, For he has put all things under his feet, uh, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Hmm. Yeah, those are famous stories uh, in the Christian scriptures. The problem is, what is Psalm chapter 8 speaking about? And That's the question. Uh, it's very clear when you just read uh, Psalm 8 that 
it's not speaking about uh, a particular individual, specifically not speaking about the Messiah, but it's speaking about mankind in general. It speaks about um, all human beings Hmm. um, and how low we are, how small we are compared to God. Um, but God, though, uh, you know, he sp- the, the compiler of the list speaks about exaltation in the sense that, you know, the, this uh, humble Messiah is exalted, you know, really to the level of God. Here, it, it's the not humiliation of people. It really speaks about the fact that human beings are small and humble compared to God, but mm. that God ultimately gives human beings, not just the Messiah, gives human beings dominion over nature. That's the exaltation that this psalm is speaking about. Um, it speaks about the fact that, um, as we see in Genesis one twenty-eight, human beings were given uh, you know, a special role to play in the world of creation, and that uh, really everything is under our dominion, and that's what you see in verses 6 to 8 in this psalm. Uh, now, this this is. Let me just ask you about this because there's, there's a curious thing here, and particularly in verse five, uh, you're quite right when it's talking about uh, mankind. It, it says in verse four, it's not talking about an individual. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you that you visit him? Uh, for you have made him a little lower than. Now, I've got in in the English, I've got the angels, but that's not what it says, right? It says Elohim. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I mean, again, you could translate it either way. I mean, the word Elohim is not a specific name for God himself. It is a term that is used for angels frequently. Um, so you could very, very easily go with either translation and not be terribly wrong. Um, but it seems from the context, at least, that it's speaking about God himself because it was speaking about the creator of the stars and the heavens. Um, God also created the angels. So it would be more difficult to plug the angels into this passage. Mm. Um, but I think that the writer often, the translator, doesn't even want to talk about human beings you know, being a little bit lower than God. I mean, how do you even make that comparison? <laughs> so I think that, so to take the edge off of it, you know, it's okay, we're a little bit lower than the angels, which is not, doesn't seem to be such an absurd comparison. Um, Fair enough. But um, what's, what is important to understand is that you know, someone reading Psalm 8 uh, if they were reading this psalm a hundred years before the Common Era, um, th- they wouldn't think, they wouldn't have even the slightest reason to assume that this was a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. Uh, there's nothing to do with this psalm. There's nothing in the context of this psalm mm. that points to the Messiah specifically when it's very clear from just the reading of the words themselves that it's really a passage about humanity in general. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it's and, very clear. Yeah, and, and again, the exaltation is not that you know humanity is going to become exalted to the point of being on the same level as God. The exaltation, the special raising up of these human beings is that we were given a special place in the world of nature. We, again, we see this in the psalm itself, verses 6 to 8, um, that we have been given granted dominion over the world of nature. We're now upon uh, number 68, and we're knocking on the door of Psalm 16. Now, this is one that I am used to hearing in the shortlist uh, in, in, you know, uh, in my days in the church. And uh, this one does take a little bit of explaining. I think because we've gone over an hour already, we might leave this to uh, include 
in next week when we get into Psalm 22 as well. And so there's something that the listeners can look forward to. And uh, But again, thank you, my friend, uh, Rabbi Michael Skoback, for coming back on The Truth To You and discussing the 365 <laughs> Messianic prophecies in the Tanakh, uh, Messianic prophecies that Jesus apparently fulfilled in the New Testament. And uh, we're making a dent. We're getting through it, my friend. We're slowly getting there. We're slowly getting there. It's going to be picking up uh, next week because both 16 and 22 are ones that I'm used to hearing on the short list. But uh, just for the listeners, again, the website is JewsForJudaism.ca. JewsForJudaism.ca. Go there and enjoy the immense amount of resources that you will find there as well. And in the meantime, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's word. Shalom. Excellent. I'm always, I'm always very much uplifted by your ending, by the way. Do you? Oh, really? I really? It's just because I really do. I, I feel it in my, in my guts. I feel uplifted when you when I hear those really? words. Yeah. Oh, I'm you glad. Say, I'm glad. You, you say it with a lot of um, resolve, and there's a lot of. Uh, f- there's not just the words that are coming out, there's a lot of feeling behind those words, and I really always feel it with you. The reason why I say it is because uh, obedience is the source of blessing, and, and, and God God blesses us in, in obedience. And, and the other reason why I, I like to say set apart is because a lot of people are confused by the definition of holiness, and and uh, and, and it is the commandments that set us apart. And so uh, it's just a, it is it's a it's a reminder. You know what we've just been discussing is truth as opposed to what we've been used to hearing, particularly if you've been brought up in the church. So I appreciate that. Thanks for. It.